You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples, to him sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Having been baptized with the baptism of John, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we declare um, in faith that Jesus, yes, you are the Messiah. You are the one we have been waiting for. And we're so grateful that you have come. We're so grateful um, that you have taught us Um, Even today in the Gospel of Luke, we're so grateful, Christ, that you uh, accomplished all that you did on our behalf, that you um, fulfilled all of the laws and the prophets, and that, Christ, you uh, were raised again after your crucifixion. And Jesus, we say, you are the Messiah, the expected one, and we put our faith and our hope in you. We pray that you would be magnified in this time. We pray that you would help us know you deeper and more fully. We pray that you would um, help us put aside our circumstances and all the different things that surround us and to just behold you, to look at you, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. may be seated. Good afternoon. My name is Kyle. I'm a pastor here at Christ Church. I'm, uh, I hope, your second favorite preacher. Um, Your first favorite preacher is having a wonderful, I don't know how to say, what, what do they do in England? lollygag, a skip. Um, I don't know what they do over there, but they're having an excellent time overseas. Nathan's working on his PhD. Did you hear him still pastoring you during that liturgy? 
Like, did you, like, those songs and uh, the confession and the profession are right in line with the texts that are here this evening. I didn't create that. Nathan created that. What a, what a gift we have in Nathan. What a gift we have in Rabo, who took my place this week. I was, telling, I was talking to one of you this week and said that I was preaching. And they said, that's great. And then one of your wonderful children said, wait, you're doing the up and down and the preaching? And I was like, the up and down. That is what I'm going to call liturgy from now on. It's officially the up and down. I think that's a right an accurate um, definition and explanation. Thank you, Raybo, for doing the up and down today. Um, and thank you, Nathan, for so faithfully loving and caring for our church. If you think about Nathan and Marcy while they're there, it's a long needed vacation. And so I, I hope that you would pray for them. I hope that you would encourage them um, when they come back. Um, and I, I pray that their time is well, fun and relaxing. And so speaking of fun and relaxing, here's my transition. Um, let's talk about fresh baked cookies for just a moment. I don't know if you enjoyed fresh baked cookies or if that was a part of your childhood, uh, fresh baked anything, but I loved cooking with my mom. I loved getting the ingredients. Um, I loved putting it all together. I loved gathering it. I loved measuring them out. And I loved the way that vanilla extract smelled. Um, any, anyone here with me on the vanilla extract or cocoa powder? Any of you badger your mom asking, will you please let me taste it? Can I please have a spoonful? Would you please just let me have a little bit? Do you remember the first time that vanilla extract hit your tongue or the cocoa powder hit your tongue? You snuck it out of the cabinet or yeah, we got some hands up and I appreciate that. You knew you liked cookies or cakes or whatever you're making. You knew that once all of the ingredients came together, it would be delicious. You smelt the vanilla and it smelt amazing. You look at the cocoa and it looked like chocolate. It makes sense that you should, uh, that bowls should taste delicious, that they should satisfy you. It seems like a reasonable expectation. So you ask over and over again. Um, you ask your mom, your dad, your grandparent, and they say, no, trust me, you're not going to like that. You persist, you persist, you persist, and finally they say, okay, take the spoonful, right? Yep, do it, do it. You, we've already done everything we need to do. Go over there, get the vanilla extract, stick it in your mouth. You do, you immediately realize the mistake that you've made. Tears fill your eyes. And then what do you do? You turn to your mom and you say, why did you let me eat that? Like, what's wrong with you, mom? What are you thinking? You should have known better. And they just give you the, the age old answer. What did you expect? Like, what did you expect? I told you. I showed you, I reasoned with you, I sent, I mean, I, I talked with you and I told you it would not taste good, but you expected your circumstances to improve. You expected them to get better with that spoonful. You're, you're skipping the baking process, you're skipping the waiting, um, and it did not accomplish what you thought it would. Your wisdom and your understanding went unmet. Your expectations went unmet and you were sitting there with tears in your eyes yelling at mom. Here's the transition. Jesus was the expected Messiah that met nobody's expectations. Okay, I'll, I'll say that again. Jesus was the expected Messiah that met nobody's expectations. Most of Israel knew and believed that he was coming. They, that, that was not disputed. The Messiah was coming. They all had their own ideas of what that meant and what it would be like. And that's true of the three groups of people that we just heard read about um, in our text tonight, um, those receiving Jesus, John the Baptist, um, the, uh, the, the, those, the lawyers, um, uh, the tax collectors, the crowd that received the repentance, the, the baptism of repentance, and then those who rejected it. That was true of them. They, they, Jesus was not who they expected him to be. When all of the ingredients come together and enjoyed 
are enjoyed right out of the oven, all of your expectations are met and you are satisfied. But the process and the ingredients themselves have to be handled with precision, have to be handled with care. And if they're not, you will not get the desired outcome. And like baking, God often reminds us that some of the ingredients, some of the things that we are going to experience in this life are not going to be pleasant, okay? Eating raw eggs, not pleasant. Vanilla extract, cocoa powder, flour, sugar, salt, all on their own do not meet our expectations. They exist in the baking process to meet our needs, right? And so in those moments, if you just take them out of order and take them individually, they don't meet your expectation. But if you put them all together, they they create what you need, what you want. They exist to come together in a way that creates a wonderful outcome, right? Filled with joy, contentment, but the key is trusting the process. In the Christian life, okay, so thinking about this through our text this evening, the key is trusting God and the Messiah he sent instead of ourselves and the Messiah that we expected or had hoped for or wanted individually. So let's get into it. Just like mom, uh, tonight we are going to ask three times, uh, what did you expect? Okay, and as we see three different responses to Jesus from John the Baptist, uh, we see the crowd, we see um, those who received him, and then those who didn't will answer the question in three ways. So our, our three different points will be, what did you expect? I expected different circumstances. I expected a different type of prophet, a different type of Messiah was the second answer to that question. And the third was, I expected a different outcome. I thought things would go differently for me in this scenario. And so let's get into it. What did you expect? Different circumstances. Like Nathan mentioned last week, We have moved from being taught by Jesus on the Sermon on the Plain what the kingdom of God is like, and he has begun to show us what the kingdom of God will be like. And so in the spirit of both Elisha and Elijah, Christ heals a centurion servant and raises the son of a widow from the dead. Okay, so at the end of this process, the people are saying, we believe that you are sent from God. So he's doing things that people expected from the Messiah, but in ways nobody expected. He's healing the servants of an occupying Roman officer, right? So no one expected that. And he's touching dead bodies, okay? He's breaking the law um, of Israel. Nobody expected that. So on one hand, it's easy to see Jesus as sent from God. And many did. The acknowledgement of Jesus was a prophet from God. But it begs the question, why would God help the occupying Roman enemies of Israel? And why would Christ seemingly disregard the laws of Israel by touching dead bodies? It makes no sense. It's not what you expect. More than that, why would God allow John, the one Malachi predicted 400 years before this, um, the one Jesus himself called greatest born among women, as we just heard in verse 28, why would he allow him to sit in a jail for standing up for truth and declaring King Herod's marriage as illegitimate and, and sinful? Why would he let that? Why is Jesus healing Roman servants but ignoring the circumstances of Jewish prophets? Like Nathan mentioned last week, Jesus is not only the prophet, um, he is not only a prophet, but he is God. And he's not only coming to save Israel, but what did, what did John say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, so he is doing something bigger. Okay, Luke really hammers home two things in this section that I want to make sure I highlight and make sure that are clear to us tonight. Um, from the beginning, he's continuing his efforts to show that Jesus is the expected Messiah, that John was the prophet who was paving the way from him. And the baptism, um, the second thing that he is showing is that the baptism of John or the call to repentance is a key component in entering the kingdom of God. He's hitting that again. And he does both of these things by exposing the three different responses that I mentioned above. So let's look at John's. 
Let's take John's response now. He hears from his disciples that Jesus had just healed two people in a fairly miraculous way, like the prophets of old had done. And instead of responding by rejoicing, right, by praising God, by saying, I knew it, that's just like Jesus, John has a moment of weakness and sends two of his disciples to Jesus to see, to ask, is he really the one? John had, let's remember, John had baptized Jesus. He had all the miraculous events of his own life. Undoubtedly, he had heard the stories of his dad in the temple. He had heard the stories of him leaping in the womb. Um, He has been with Jesus. Um, He had, uh, instead of, uh, let's see, he was doing by how he responds. So Jesus, sorry, John had baptized Jesus. He had been with Jesus. He had seen Jesus. He knew Jesus. He knew, and now he responded, instead of rejoicing by questioning, are you really the Messiah? And because of that response, you'd expect me to title this section of my sermon, A Different Prophet. That's the second title, A Different Prophet. But instead of different circumstances, it seems like John is confused and wondering if Jesus is the expected one. But is that really what's going on here? Do you really think he's confused? Was John confused or was he disappointed? It really seems John was questioning God's goodness in the face of his terrible circumstances. His circumstances were causing him to doubt God and his ways. John expected the vanilla extract to be sweet, right? He had smelled it. He had heard about it. He knew that the Messiah was coming, and he thought it would be sweet in his mouth, but instead it was bitter. He was sitting in jail having to hear secondhand about the things that the Messiah was doing. What happened to the John that was living in the wilderness eating bugs and honey, right? What happened to the John that was rebuking the religious leaders, calling them vipers? He was so bold. What happened to the John who was baptizing the multitudes and who declared to the world, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? What happened? His circumstances had changed. (laughs) He didn't mind living in the desert and eating bugs. Things were going according to plan, but jail was not a part of John's agenda. It was not a part of his plan for his life. The expectations that he had formed in his heart and mind about his life and ministry were not coming to pass. So he reverted to what we all revert to in a situation like this, which is immediate self-pity and doubt. Immediate self-pity and doubt. Just like the child who immediately turns on the parent who advised them not to taste the vanilla extract, we run from God. Why did you let this happen, we ask? Are you really trustworthy? Are you real at all? I think when we're in the midst of sin, when we're in the midst of difficult circumstances, nothing causes the Christian, nothing causes the non-Christian to doubt God's existence more than that moment. We expect so much from God that he never promised us. We expect easy lives. We expect easy circumstances. We expect quick fixes to our sin nature, our indwelling sin patterns, or the indwelling sin patterns of others. We expect God to change with the culture and our evolving appetites for the world. But what should we expect? What should John have expected? From the scope of Scripture and the history of Israel, John should have expected to be rejected right, as a prophet, and killed because that's what Israel has always done when God has sent her prophets and warned her about the judgment to come. See, unmet expectations, they create the perfect soil for doubts to grow. 
When things aren't going our way, the soil becomes fertile for us to then begin to doubt God, doubt his goodness, doubt his kindness. And this section of scripture is shocking for many to read. Actually, some commentators try to make it seem like John isn't doubting. They try to do some cartwheels around what's really going on here. He was with Jesus. He was a part of his miraculous baptism. How could he be doubting? He declared that he must increase and that Jesus must, uh, Jesus must increase, he must decrease. How could he be doubting him? Go back to chapter 3 sometime this week in Luke and just read all that John uh, wrote that Luke knew and understood. No, Luke wrote that John knew and understood um, that Jesus was. How could someone with so much knowledge of Jesus, so many experiences of Christ's goodness, doubt for a second that he was the genuine Messiah? Our shock is minimized when we remember that John was a person just like us. And I know many of you this week doubted if Jesus was the true Messiah. Doubted if he was really as satisfying as he claims to be. Really as kind. Really as good. Our shock is minimized when we remember how kind God has been in the face of our struggles and doubts. And how he has met us in the midst of those things. See, like John, we're weak. We ignore the goodness of God towards us. We forget all the work he has done in us. We forget all the scope of scripture and the suffering and the struggles coming for those who follow him. And instead we focus on our worldly circumstances. We rejoice in our salvation, but we begrudge our sanctification. We love the part of the gospel that bears our burden and gives us rest. Jesus says, come all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, but we often begrudge the part that calls us to come, come and die. Suffering seems like such a waste to us. It seems purposeless. It seems unnecessary. And just like John, we ask, are you really the one I should look for? Are you really the one that will satisfy my soul, or shall I look for someone else? This is how, this is not how I expected life to feel. This is not where I expected to be. This is not the job that I wanted to do. I wanted a spouse. I was hoping for that. I thought I would be a famous actor or actress in Hollywood. I thought I would be a famous, noteworthy missionary. I thought I would do something incredible for your kingdom. Why am I rotting in this jail cell of a life? Many of you are walking around feeling that and thinking that. You're not John the Baptist. You're not about to be beheaded, but you view your circumstances and God's response to them is just allowing you to sit there and rot without his goodness or kindness. Why am I rotting in this jail cell? Why are you not living up to my expectations, God? What's Jesus's response to John's doubt? I love this. He like becomes more Jesus in the moment. He's like, okay, you're doubting me? That very hour, he heals as many people as he can see. He just, he just goes crazy. He just says, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to doubt me. I'm going to be more Christ than I've ever been before you. That's his response. And that hour, he took his healing to the next level. He doesn't rebuke John. He doesn't tell his disciples, you better go tell him to watch it. You better go tell him. You better remember who I am, and you better suffer well, because if you don't, you're out, buddy. He doesn't do that. He displays to John's disciples why John should trust him all the more. He heals. He basically fulfills the last half of the book of Isaiah. That's what John's doing here in verse 22. He sums up most of the prophecies in the end of Isaiah about what the Messiah would be. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Go tell John about me is what Jesus says. 
Go remind him why I came. Go remind him that he has participated in my work. Go remind him that my ways are not his ways and my thoughts are not his thoughts. I find this to be a super generous portion of scripture. I think, I think Luke intentionally put this in here. Obviously, the Holy Spirit inspired him to put this in here. But we get a picture of a follower of Jesus struggling to trust him, doubting his goodness. Yet Christ is patient. He's persistent. And he sends John word to encourage him and strengthen him. He actually goes beyond that. He commends him to the crowd and reminds them that he is still the prophet. And that in the midst of even his doubt, he is still going to be used by God. He's kind. So I've cried with many of you over the years who are experiencing doubt brought on by difficult and unmet, undesired consequences and expectations. I anticipate to do that for the rest of my ministry. I've confessed my own longing and my own doubt, my own discontentment, my own struggle to find joy in the Lord. So doubting Christian, person in here struggling to find faith, be comforted. You're not alone. You are in the company of John the Baptist. That's a pretty famous guy, right? You're in the company of your fellow Christians because we have been doing this together since Jesus started the church. You are in the company of your pastor who struggles also to find his joy and contentment in the Messiah, to trust him with everything. And you are definitely in the company of Christ. He's with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He will never change. His plans have not shifted. You can trust him even in the valley. Even if your valley takes 70, 80, or 90 years to get out of, even if only death is the relief from this difficulty that you're facing, whether it be disease or unmet expectations or difficulty, Christ is with you. And we know that he's not a shifty savior because he died, right? His valley, his his 33 years, his three years of ministry on this life was not peaks, it was lows. And the end of that was the lamb of God himself being removed from the face of the planet. Christ is a savior. He is with you. And he says even more than that. He says this. He says, I tell you among those, this is verse 28, born of women, none is greater than John yet. This is what he says about you. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The first shall be last. The poor shall be rich. The weak made strong. Those who weep will be comforted, they will weep no more. The least shall be the greatest, and because of Christ, you are the greatest in the kingdom of God, because he is the least, and you are being formed in his image, right? He is the greatest, if you want to do it the other way, and you are being formed in his image. That's how kind Christ is to you. What a grace and kindness. Jesus knew why John was struggling. He knows why you're struggling. You're not hiding it from him. He knows he was doubting because of his current circumstances and his responses. It was not to rush to get him out of jail. It was not to pay bail. I mean, we see this in scripture. We should remember things like this. That was not Christ's response. His response was to give him more reason to trust him even when his circumstances were made difficult. Even when he didn't understand. Even when he didn't know. Hear this. The kindest thing God can do for us is be God. Okay, the kindest thing God can do for you is to continue to be exactly who he is. Just think about it. How would you finish that sentence? The kindest thing God could do for me is, you don't have to shout it out. Let's not get crazy. But just think about it. 
The kindest thing God can do for me is, I know John would say, get me out of this jail cell. Let me join in the ministry again. Let me be with you. Let me see these things firsthand. I'm tired of just hearing about them in other people's lives. I want to be there. I want to be with them. I want to see things happening in my life. Why aren't I walking through these bars? Why aren't I seeing the miracle? Why am I heading towards this horrible death? The kindest thing God could do for me would be But the reality is we are dependent on him for life and breath and everything. If God were to change, if he were to begin to bend towards us and bow to us and serve us, all that you hope in, all that you have, all that you know, whether you're a Christian or you're not, would cease to exist. God cannot change. God cannot make mistakes. If that's true, he ceases to be God, and our faith is in nothing. Our faith is in nothing. So if you want a God that serves you, then you really just want yourself. You want, you want to be God. And that was what Adam and Eve struggled with in the garden. And then we don't have time to, that's a whole nother sermon. It's okay. So hear this. It's okay to go through seasons of doubt. It's okay to cry out to God and question why he would allow difficult circumstances. Okay to struggle. And I'm not going to qualify that. I'm not going to say, but I'm just going to say it's okay. And why can I say that with such confidence that it's okay to wrestle with God? It's okay to send messengers to God and say, what is going on? It's okay. It's okay because if we are really followers of Jesus, he will sustain us. He is the one who's doing the work. He will keep us. He will enable us to trust his goodness in our difficult circumstances, in our doubt, in our sorrow, in our wrestling. Christ is sovereign over all of those things. We sang it. We sang one of the most difficult songs to sing. Like whether it rains, whatever, my father planned it all. That's talking about the very real and difficult things in your life. We just sing it together. And Christ is sovereign over all those things. He will continue to be Jesus and he will continue to do what he does in your life, even in the midst of your doubt. It's okay. It's okay to struggle. But here's what's not okay. Struggling alone. Too many of you are struggling by yourself in your room, in your mind, in your thoughts, and you're getting further and further and further away from the comfort of God. John had his disciples. John sent them to Christ. They came back with an encouraging message and undoubtedly encouraged him in the Lord. Let us be that for you. Let the church be that for you. Do not struggle alone. Though we might not understand what he is doing, we can understand who he is, and we can rest in his goodness together. We can heed the word of John and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I can remind you, behold him, look at him, fix your eyes on him. I can't fix this problem for you, but I can sit here with you and struggle and weep with you. Let's do it together. Cling to what you know to be true of him and know that he is faithful. He will make your path straight. He does all of that. That's him. Before we do move on, it's important to hear the warning that Jesus does send to John and that he, I think more importantly, is preaching to the crowd around him. So he knows John. He's not worried about John. It's interesting. He doesn't send a a big concern for John. He just says, go tell them I'm more Jesus than I've ever been, right? Go tell them all this crazy stuff I just did. John will be fine. But he says this, he says this in verse 23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Other translations say fall away or stumble. This is a picture in the Old Testament, the cornerstone kind of falling on some of the Jews or tripping up some of the Jews. Jesus knew that this was happening. He knew this was a big part of uh, the prediction of the Messiah, and he, he warns us not to stumble on him. So Jesus is not concerned about you being offended, about being like politically correct or offended. Jesus is concerned with us taking offense to the fact that he is not the Messiah we expected and then turning away from him. That's what he's concerned with. 
What are the circumstances you expected? What are the things you thought he would do, stumbling over them and over Jesus instead of standing firm on the foundation of the gospel? That's, that's Christ's main concern. Okay, don't, I know I'm not what you expect. I'm not what anybody expected, but don't stumble over that. Allow that to make you trust me all the more. The upside down kingdom where kings are brought low and the poor and the weak and the blind and the lame are healed and brought up. Don't stumble over that. Marvel, rejoice in that gospel reality. That's what Christ is calling us to do. Hear Christ's warning, brothers and sisters struggling with doubt in difficult circumstances. Press past how you feel. Press past how you feel and see Jesus for the Messiah that he is, not the one you wish he was. Be blessed and do not stumble over his plan for your life. He's good and he's trustworthy. Okay, so that's our first, that's our first answer to the question, what did you expect? I expected different circumstances, John said. If John expected different, different circumstances, then the crowd definitely expected a different prophet and a different Messiah. He was not, John was not meeting uh, their expectations and neither was Jesus. So our attention now shifts from John to the crowd and the circumstances of the crowd who had gathered around Jesus. So at the end of his teaching tonight, uh, Jesus, uh, he characterizes the crowd in two groups of children, okay? Wise children and unwise children, repentant children and unrepentant children, those who received the baptism of John and those who didn't. So neither of these groups were expecting John and his baptism of repentance or Jesus and his message of the kingdom of God. Neither of them were ready for that. Neither of them were expecting John to call out the religious leaders. They thought he's going to call us out. He didn't expect Jesus to elevate the blind and the lame, the deaf, the diseased, the poor, and the dead over the religious leaders of the day. So honestly, the culture of Jesus's time in the ancient Near East considered these sick people, they considered them cursed, not blessed. Okay, so they thought their dad, their mom, their grandma, their uncle, or maybe them, they have, they have committed some terrible sin. And because of that, God is punishing them. So that actually helps us understand a little bit why people could be so hard-hearted, right? Why is Jesus healing these people? Why is he eating with these people? Like they are currently under the curse of God. Their hardness of heart was birthed from an unmet expectation about the world, and that went against their bad understanding of who God is and what he's like. So they have this understanding of what the world should be like. They have this understanding of what God should be like. And so because of that, they have an understanding of what the Messiah should be like, what he should do, what he should come preaching and doing. They expected a savior to be just like them, think just like them, obey just like them, and so on. They sought to know and understand God through their own worldview and experiences. And this, is, this isn't only true of religious zealots. This is true of every human being, every group of people who has ever gained power. Um, in our day, it can be true of anyone who passionately carries a torch for any cause, really, ideal. Humanity has always been creating the right and the wrong, the in and the out, the acceptable and the unacceptable. We're really good at doing that. So imagine, in this crowd, being the outcast, the plain, the unremarkable, and being told that John, the crazy man, remember John in the desert? He is, he is saying, he's preparing a way for a Messiah who accepts the ordinary, who accepts the rejected of society and gives them the most privileged place in his kingdom. What a beautiful message. I mean, that, that is just balm to the soul of those who have been told their whole lives, God is cursing you. God hates you. You've obviously done something wrong, and he's taking it out on them. What a beautiful message. The call to repentance is heard and received by those who have nothing better in this life than Jesus. Okay, the call to repentance. That's, that's, 
That's, I think, a statement worth thinking about. The call to repentance is heard and received by those who have nothing better in this life than Jesus. Jesus said it another way. I didn't come to save the healthy but the sick, right? So, so that doesn't mean that there are healthy people spiritually and sick people. It means that the people who understand that they're sick, they go to the doctor. They go to the one who's going to meet their needs. And, and same here. The call to repentance is heard and received by those who have nothing better in this life than Jesus. And that doesn't mean that you need to be physically marred or materially poor to receive Jesus, but it does mean that health or sickness, rich or poor, hated by the world or loved by the world, we must repent and turn from the things of this world and turn to the one who holds the entire world in the palm of his hand, who spoke it into existence. Often the sickest people in this world are those who have the best health, those who have the most wealth. You would never know it. Their disease is their confidence and their self-reliance. And their death is slow in this life, but it's comfortable, right? But their joy and, and their comfort ends in this life. And their sorrow and their suffering begins in the next. No one expected a Messiah who didn't operate how humanity operated. Nobody would. A plain man preaching a kingdom that is unconcerned with riches but elevates the lowly makes no sense except for in the heart of God. He owns the universe, yet comes after you, right? you of all people, you who doubt, you who fear, you who are greedy, you who are proud, you who are filled with lust, you who look at pornography, you, even you, the King of Kings died to love and save and care for you. I think that's the message Jesus is trying to get across to this crowd. You're all sick. You're all lame, you're all blind, and we know it, we see it, we experience it in the world all the time. We're just stealing and taking from each other. And Jesus says, I came to save even you, tax collectors, even you, Pharisees. The Jews expected the prophet that Jesus describes in verse 24, okay? So that is a man who shifts and leans. He's like a reed. Jesus says, what'd you come out to see? A reed that is moving with the wind, a man who wears fine clothes, rubbing elbows with politicians and kings. That's worldly wisdom. Someone with influence, someone with pomp, someone with um, exercising authority in this life, in this world, but that is not who they got. Instead, they got John right? They got John who called them to repent of their confidence in their Jewish nationality and believe in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Everybody excludes nobody. The Messiah who cares for the Roman centurion and the widow, that's who they got. The one who heals on the Sabbath and dines with prostitutes, that's who they got. The one with no worldly influence to the point where the Roman authorities would nail him to a cross. They had power over him. He had no strength. I mean, they had power over him that he gave to them, but that's how he came. He came as a suffering servant. He came meek and lowly. The crowd and the tax collectors heard this message repeated and recognized the justice of God because they had received the baptism of repentance. God's justice is not to be understood by looking at our worldly circumstances, whether good or bad, and that's, that's how humans act. But God's bigger than that. He's better than that. The justice of God is to be, understand by look, is to be understood by looking at the Messiah, by looking at Jesus, by looking at the cross. Through repentance and faith, the rich and poor are equal. That's what God's justice looks like. Through repentance and faith, the rich and poor are equal. God's justice is not exercised through cursing or blessing us. God's justice is exercised through cursing and blessing his son. He cursed Jesus on the tree, crucified him on the cross, and blessed him by raising him from the dead, 
and giving him all authority in heaven and earth. And you are invited out of the curse into the blessing because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Blessed are the ones who are not offended by this. That's Christ's words. You're blessed if you're not offended by this lowly, humble, real justice of God presented to you in the gospel. It's a blessing. And cursed, cursed are those who do stumble on this. Blessing comes from seeing Jesus correctly, understanding him rightly. And curse comes from when we get what our hearts desire now, but we continue to see Jesus incorrectly. We, we remain in a curse. It's right side up, but it feels so upside down. Some of you right now don't feel blessed in your jail cell. Some of you right now don't feel cursed in your cushy, comfortable life. It's confusing. It's upside down. And Jesus came and blew out all of our expectations. So let's look at our last point. What were you expecting? And this is the Jews, uh, the Pharisees, the religious, the lawyers, and the teachers. The others were expecting to be told, you're not worthy. But Jesus is saying, no, you actually are worthy. And the Jews were being expected to be told, you're, you did it. Thank you. Thank you so much for being who you are, Pharisees. Thank you so much for understanding and for doing all the things. You held the rope, and now I'm here to finish the work. But that is not the outcome that they got. The lawyers and Pharisees were not expecting Jesus to, to, to say that they rejected him if they refused to repent. See, this is the tricky spot. So they tasted the vanilla extract. It was bitter. They hated it. They spit it out of their mouth, and they ran away from home. <laughs> That was their response. So like the little kid that squirms on the counter and goes, eh, and then eats a cookie and is better. Like that's like the first group. They're like, that was not what we expected. That, this is not the Messiah we expected, but this is sweet. We're thankful for this process. We're thankful for this gospel that elevates us. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, they walked out of the house. They, why should we repent? Right? They were the ones who knew and obeyed the law. Jesus was a drunk is what they said, who constantly ignored the Sabbath and touched dead people. This is not the outcome they expected, so therefore Jesus could not be the true Messiah. The true Messiah would praise them for the dedication to the law, not demand that they repent. He would go along with their ideas and would use his influence to overthrow Rome, right? What other ideas do they have? To, to restore Israel to the way it was under King David and Solomon, to build their kingdom now. They had, this is tragic. This is so tragic. They've been waiting for the Messiah. They've been reading about him, teaching about him, dreaming about him. And now that he's here, they don't want him. Christ marveled at the faith of the centurion. I think that Christ also marveled at the lack of faith, at the hardness of heart of the Jewish leaders of the Pharisees. It's such a sad reality. And it's funny because Jesus is funny here again. He uses something we have all seen and experienced to explain what's going on in the heart of the Pharisees. Okay, so Jesus basically calls them fussy toddlers. <laughs> he says, you are fussy toddlers. No matter what I hand you, you're going to smack it on the ground. You don't want it. No matter what I do, what I say, you're going to say, I want the opposite. So he uses this parable. He says, when a wedding song is played, they refuse to dance and rejoice. But in the same moment, when a song of mourning, when a dirge was played, they refuse to mourn and cry. They don't know what they are feeling. They don't know what they want. They don't know how to respond. And instead of trusting in the one who was sent to save them, they reject the very one that they had been waiting for and talking about and anticipating because he was not the Messiah they expected. Jesus also helped them understand. He said, John came. He came like a prophet of old. 
Okay, John came living in the woods, dressed in fur, doing weird stuff like the prophets in the Old Testament did, uh, not eating bread, not drinking wine, and they rejected him and said, that guy's demon-possessed. He's, he's not sent from God. And Jesus came in the exact opposite manner, right? He came not like the prophet of old, doing things they had never seen or imagined, eating, drinking, caring for the sinner and tax collector, healing the sick, raising the dead, and they dismissed him as a glutton and a drunkard. Unless the Messiah came looking and living just like them, they would not receive him. So they disregarded God's anointed completely and continued to wait for the Messiah that checked all their boxes. Super dangerous. This is really dangerous. The Messiah that checks all your boxes. You want to shove Jesus into whatever worldview, ideology, system that you think he should be in. And that's why the Jews, many of them, rejected him. This is the folly of our current age, and I think every, every age has ever existed. Everyone has an agenda. Everyone has an idea about what the world needs. Everyone accuses God of not understanding their agenda, and so they continue to wait for another solution, or even worse, in many cases, they begin to become their own solution. They begin to try to figure it out themselves and solve the world's problems apart from the one who created it, and we all know how that has gone throughout history. God has sent a solution and the world rejects him because he does not work with or for them. He does not look right. His rally cry does not match theirs. He has his priorities wrong in their opinion. So they look to themselves. They look to governments and to causes to right this world instead of the one who spoke it into existence. They would actually prefer the reed, right? The thing that shifts and goes back and forth. They would prefer the man dressed in fine clothing because at least they're getting things done. Like, I don't want to vote for him, but I'm going to because at least he'll get something done. I don't want to put my hope over here, but I'm going to because at least they're accomplishing something. Repenting of sin and following Jesus seems like too small a thing for many of us. How could that actually be how God fixes the world, how God recreates this universe through the repentance of sin, through his son who died on the cross? How could that be it? How will that restore the temple, the Jews thought? How will that get rid of Rome? How will that benefit the kingdom we're building here on earth? How will that relieve the suffering we see in the world? How will that bring about equity and equality? How will that end poverty? How will that fix racism? How will that bring justice? How is this equalizing gospel of grace that elevates the poor and brings down the rich, that heals the sick and brings down those who think they are healthy? How is that any type of solution? And what does Jesus do about it? When faced with these toddlers of Pharisees, he does just what he did with John. He, he responds, he's, 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 he's dismissed and said he's a drunkard, he's a glutton, he's just worldly. Just like he did for John the Baptist, he keeps on being Jesus. You have to come back next week. Jordan's going to preach on this. But the very next passage is a story about Jesus eating with Pharisees, but loving and caring for a broken woman who came to him knowing that she needed healing, knowing that she needed to be saved. It's beautiful. What a wonderful Savior. Many declare that it's crazy, it's crazy to trust in a dead guy for the forgiveness of sins, right? Many say, you've heard me even say this, I think the last time I preached, that it's cosmic child abuse for God to punish me, no, to punish Jesus for me, for my sins. Many people said if God was really loving, if he was really kind, he'd just accept me as I am. He just let me go to heaven. He would forget about all these things. I mean, there's a million ways to dismiss the Messiah, but there is only one way to receive him. And that is through repentance and faith. That is through understanding Jesus correctly. It's through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in you. 
helping you to set aside your circumstances, set aside your expectations, set aside your desired outcomes and recognize that those are off, that your compass is off, that the world's compass is off. I don't have to argue up here for very long to say that this world is off. The solutions of man, of governments, ideas, ideologies have not produced what they have promised ever. We have to realize that it's our sin in us and through us and around us. We've invited the separation. We've invited the disease. We've invited all of the scourging things that we see in this world. We've invited them into our lives. We can't just fix our eyes on ourselves. We can't stop there. We must look to Jesus. That's what this whole book is about, is seeing Jesus correctly, seeing him rightly as the one sent from God, the creator of the world, friend of sinners, tax collectors, God, man, prophet, priest, king, suffering servant, lamb of God, savior of the world. There's plenty of ways to describe the same thing. Jesus is the one that you have been waiting for. If you're in here, if you're, if you're wondering what will satisfy my soul, I can so confidently tell you Jesus is the one you've been looking for. He is the one you've been waiting for. We, have, we must receive him by faith and follow him no matter the cost, no matter what our circumstances, even though he leaves many of our expectations unmet. That's the hard part. Because remember, we expected the vanilla extract to be sweet. <laughs> We're often wrong. We often don't see things clearly. We often don't see the beginning and the end like the Alpha Omega, the creator of the universe does. We have to quit trusting ourselves. We need to, we need to trust him. So what do you do with this? this is, I'll close with this. What do we do with the expected Messiah who met no one's expectations? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I've just... I've just said it. The call is to repent. Okay, that just literally means we're facing the world. We're trusting in it. We're trusting in its ways. We are sinning against God. We are seeing those effects and we're trying to find the solution by ourselves. And we turn from that ideology, that understanding, and we turn our backs to it and we turn to God and say, I trust you. My plans, my solutions, my sins, they are evident and they are unsuccessful. And so I repent and turn to you, the call to truly examine your own wisdom and the wisdom of the world and discern, is it working? Is it true? Is it accomplishing Was it what it says it will? Because Jesus, I think, and I know, and I believe, the friend of sinners, he will do what he said he will do in you, I know. He calls you to follow him, and I call you as a friend to listen to him today, even now. Follow him, trust him. If you're not, um, if you're already a follower of Jesus and you're wondering, what is the call for me? The call's to repent. It's the same thing. I mean, the Christian life is faith and repentance. That's what gets us into the club. And that's what grows us and sanctifies us is having faith in Jesus and repenting from the things that we're currently putting our faith in. Forsake the things of this world that are causing you to doubt Jesus and turn to him. Strive to see him for the savior he is, not the one you wish he was. That's, man. That's what I hope for you, the Savior you need, not the Savior you necessarily want. Christ is that. He is that. Difficult circumstances, unmet expectation, indwelling sin, all cause us to wish for a different type of Savior, one that makes sense to us, one that we can control and manipulate to serve our own needs. We must look at the whole. We got to look at the cookie. Right? Remember how sweet it is when it all comes together. Remember the wisdom of the recipe and the wisdom of your mom who said, man, don't taste that. It's not what you expect, okay? We as believers must see the whole, see Christ for who he is, trust him and follow him faithfully, even when you feel like your life is a jail cell. 
even when you don't think he really sees or feels or knows what's going on. Don't forget that he is the king of the world. He is the one who died for your sins. He's called you out of darkness into light. Take rest and comfort knowing that Christ loves you and cares for you. Pray with me. Father, we love you and we know you love us. We know we love you because you first loved us and we're so thankful that you saw fit to give us this piece of scripture that shows and highlights uh, John's doubt, that shows and highlights the doubt and skepticism of the Pharisees and of the tax collectors and everybody, Lord. That's us. We feel that way. We feel uh, doubtful. We feel like you're not who you say you are. We feel like you're counterfeit. Jesus, thank you so much for keeping us. Thank you for holding us. Thank you for keeping us on the path of what's true and right and good. Thank you for the gospel Father, I pray that it would be a stumbling block for nobody in this room. I pray that those who see it will see it for who it is, and instead of stumbling over it, they would stand firmly on the completed work of Jesus Christ, his life for our life, your goodness and kindness in exchange for our sin and rebellion. God, you're so good. You're so generous, and it's not what we expected. You're never what we expect, but you're always exactly what we need, and we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.